The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. Let's continue to praise the Lord together through the preaching of the word, looking at Psalm 48. Looking at the great Lord, the great I am in this text and how he is revealed. If you don't have a copy of the Bible with you, there's one under a chair close by you. We're on page 472 is where you'll find Psalm 48. Also in the back of the chair, there are guest cards for those of you who are new today. We'd love for you to fill out one of our guest cards and place it in the offering plate. We'll take the offering at the end of our service uh, today in just a few moments. Psalm 48 at, at some points looks very straightforward and then at other places you read it, you're kind of not sure exactly what's being said here and what's happening. I, I love weeks like this when it's a challenging psalm that you work through because that always reveals and shows the great truths of God. And I pray that he will inform your heart today as we study this text together. I invite you to stand as I read Psalm 48. A song. A psalm of the sons of Korah. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. For behold, the kings assembled. They came together and as soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. Trembling took hold of them, anguish as a woman in labor. By the east wind you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, God will establish forever. Selah. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider her ramparts. Go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God. Our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. Let's pray. Lord, we say that great is our God. You are the great king and you have spoken and revealed yourself to us. Now, Lord, make yourself known through the preaching of your word. Make things clear. Keep me from confusing your people. Speak to us. Give us courage. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. This week is the 75th anniversary of D-Day. People gathered this week at Normandy, the location that represents a turning point in human history. We gathered, they gathered there because of what transpired, of what actually happened. As young men gave their lives for the cause of freedom, for that which was moral and true. Just as they gather now not to refight the battle, 
but they gather there symbolically to remember. This psalm focuses on a location that is to prove to be symbolic. It sounds almost at first, particularly in verses 13 and 14, when it says, as you're walking about Zion, to consider ramparts or citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God, that it almost sounds like it's deifying the city. That's not the case. It's what the city represents and what the city causes to happen at this point in history as God calls his people. And we want to seek to how we apply it today in 2019. Here's our main idea. The people of God praise the Lord for who he is, for what he has done, and for what he will do. I'll show you in many locations that this psalm has a lot in common with Psalm 46. Has a lot in common with all the psalms surrounding it. These are the king psalms. As I said, at first glance, it appears it's about Zion, but it's more than that. It's a psalm about the God who is manifested to us in Zion. The psalm moves from the local, from the people of God gathered in Jerusalem to talk about the whole earth over the whole span of time. It's framed by verses 1 and 14. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Our God is forever and ever. He will guide us forever. So we're going to break this into three parts. First, the people of God praise the Lord for who he is. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in a specific location. In the city of our God. So the original audience at the point in time when the sons of Korah wrote fall at a point in history between the reign of King David and sometime before the exile, before Jerusalem is actually destroyed. During that time, this psalm is written. It's good news to God's people about God's presence. It's reminding them that God is their strength and their fortress. And the result is the joy of God's people. Brothers and sisters, we we have to focus our minds through his word, places like Psalm 48, to remind us who God is. Because when we think clearly of who God is, that he is just and true, it shapes our view of who we are and elevates us to look to him, not to ourselves, and to worship him. To say with this psalm, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. This is repeated almost identically in Psalm 96. In Psalm 96, verse 4, it says, For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. That same thought that is so clearly written in Psalm 46, He is to be feared above all gods, is what is driving the psalmist in Psalm 48 when he says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. Reflecting on what has transpired in the city of God motivates his people to praise him. So here's the question. How does the city of God reveal to the people of God who he is? Verse 2. In his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north. The city of the great king. Within her citadels, 
God has made himself known as a fortress. There's a few things we see here. We see it's a royal city, but it's not a royal city because King David lived there or King Solomon lived there. It's a royal city because it is the city of the great king, of Yahweh, of God himself. It is the place of worship. It is a place where the temple it is a place to come and to meet God. But it's more than that. You see, it's the joy of all the earth. This is something to be known worldwide. It is a beautiful place, not because of its striking landscape. In fact, it's quite arid. There's a a lot more appealing places to the eye in other places of the world than Mount Zion. But it is a beautiful place because Yahweh lives there. And because Yahweh can be met there. The location... Even though it's a fortified city, it's a walled city, walled in to protect itself. It's not the fortress that is to be focused on. The location, the citadels of God, has made God known as a fortress. The people have come to know that God is their fortress in the city of Jerusalem. Now let's turn back to Psalm 46. You've got to think about these psalms. One is looking forward or in the midst of. So Psalm 46 is saying this. We're in trouble and we need God. Psalm 48 is looking back and saying God protected us. And we need to remember that God protected us. So in this moment of trouble, you start Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. This is a good psalm to read and to refresh when you find yourself in the midst of hardship. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. He is our high and strong tower. Brothers and sisters, I have been to Jerusalem. Uh, If you ever go, I don't hate to ruin this for you, you'll likely uh, come to Jerusalem. Most tour guides are going to do this from the Dead Sea. You'll progress up the mountain as you do so. Uh, Somebody will likely read the Psalms of Ascent as you're reading, as the the pilgrims of God, as they would make their way up. You'll wind through these mountain caverns. It's just stark, rocky mountains. And just before you get there, depending on, uh, at least in this modern age, uh, there's a a song, an old gospel song called Jerusalem. And they'll likely put that on the intercom system and it'll begin to play and suddenly you'll come out between these valleys and boom there's the city now you're listening to this song which is very similar to psalm 48 in jerusalem but the first thing that will strike the christian and every time i've done it it's been at sunset as i've come into the city the first thing that will strike you is the reflection of a gold dome You won't enter the city going, praise the Lord, it's Zion. You'll enter the city going, there's a mosque where the temple of God used to be. In fact, it's quite disturbing. 
So we don't read this psalm the way Psalm 48 read to the people of God at that point in time. But we still do what they do. We remind ourselves who God is. And we remind ourselves what God has done. Now watch. The presence of the great king in verse 2 evokes two kinds of responses to God's people as they reflect on what he's done. It reflects terror and joy. It says, behold, the kings assembled. This sounds very similar to Psalm 2. They came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took the flight. Trembling took hold of them there, anguish as a woman in labor. So just as Psalm 46 promised that God was a very present help in time of trouble, we see it play out here. These kings assembled around Jerusalem to attack it, and something supernatural happened. Jerusalem's not an overwhelming place. It's, you can walk around it in about an hour, hour and a half. It's, it's not that they looked at it and they were scared because of what they saw at the city. It was They were astounded because of the God of the city. They, they trembled. It took hold of them like a people in anguish, like a woman in labor. Anybody remember what Caesar said as he would make his way and conquer? He says, I came, I saw, I conquered. The flip opposite happens here. They saw, they were astounded, they panicked, and they fled. They fled because of the God of the city. Verse 7 tells us some of them didn't even get to the city. It's an hour's drive to the Mediterranean Sea. And in verse 7 it says, By the east wind you shattered the ships of Tarshish. This great navy that was coming to attack the people, they crashed because God sent a wind and crashed them. It sounds similar to what happened to the Spanish Armada in 1588. The greatest navy that, that <clears throat> excuse me, had been known up to that time. And they sailed from Lisbon to go and attack the British. The British had a smaller fleet with, small, fleet with smaller ships. They engaged in the English Channel, and they took the day, actually. So the Spanish turned the armada and went up between Ireland and England, up to the English Channel. They got up to the North Sea and turned left. Do you know what happened? As they made their way down the western shore of Ireland, a west wind, not an east wind, blew them into the rocks, and one half of the Spanish armada was lost by the wind. If you study it in history books today, they're going to talk about the military prowess and the things that happened with the British. But the British knew better. They stamped a coin that circulated throughout England that said this, quote, God blew upon them and they were scattered. They remembered the day very differently than the way the history books now write them. We live in a very man-centered age. It's hard for us to think this way. And the way that we think this way is that we reflect in the Bible, not just in what's happening here in Psalm 48, we reflect in all of what God has done. And like verse 8, it says, as we have seen, as we have heard, and as we have seen, we witnessed in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever, Selah. The Lord of hosts here can be translated the Lord Almighty. What it conveys is that God is the Lord of armies. He is the sovereign God over all powers in the universe, both the heavenly army and here specifically of the armies of Israel. And here's what we know God does according to Psalm 46, 9. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Now these awesome acts of God, which bring terror in the hearts of the nations who are against him, 
does something different to God's people. God's people says with verse 9, We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. We have reflected, O God, on your covenant-keeping love. God promised that he would maintain his promise. He would continue to extend his love toward the people of God. So they remember. They do not forget. And this location where they are in the midst of the temple helps prompt their memory. All of you have a location in your life that if you go back, it prompts memory. Some of them not good. But other places that bring to our minds, that they remind us what had happened. It's not simply that we do not forget here. It's that we ponder, that we think on God's steadfast love. And as a result, verse 10, As your name, O God, so your praises reaches to the ends of the earth, for your right hand is filled with righteousness. The right hand of God includes his power, his justice, his love, his rightness. And the, and the nations acknowledge the awesomeness of who he is. Do you see this? His praise reaches not to, to Israel. So this is a, a point in time. It says it reaches to the ends of the earth. Because of this, verse 11, let Mount Zion be glad. Let the people who are gathered at this point in time, let them be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice. Why? Because of your judgments. Now, there's two things motivating the people of God here. This has got to return to us, brothers and sisters. What is motivating the people of God is his steadfast love, his mercy, his grace, and his judgments. That his judgments are right and true. Watch how this is expressed in Psalm 98. In Psalm 98, it says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Now with this in mind, we move to the third and final point. That the people of God praise the Lord for what he will do. The psalmist says, walk about Zion. Go around her. This is similar to what happened in Nehemiah 12 at the rebuilding of the wall. The people of God walked around the wall and they celebrated. Consider her ramparts. Go through her citadels. These are defensive structures in the wall. That you may tell the next generation that this is God. Not that the the facility, not that the ramparts are God. But that this is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us. Here's what it's saying. That the review of the city reminds the people of God who God is and what he has done. That he is the covenant-keeping God, the right God, the righteous God, who will guide his people forever. Now, everybody look up here. You're going to have to use your comprehension. You're going to have to pull some things together in your brain in the next 10 minutes. I'm going to try to be as clear as possible. I told you this was written from the time between King David and the exile. We don't know exactly. Why are the people of God exiled? Because a foreign people swept in on them and destroyed them. Why? Because they disobeyed God, they worshipped false idols, and they refused to listen to the prophets of God. 
And as a result, God sovereignly allowed this city, Zion, to be destroyed. It was during this period of the exile that Jeremiah wrote the book of Lamentations. This is the songbook during exile. Listen to the words of Lamentations 2.15. It is the flip opposite of Psalm 98. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. This is what they say. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty? Is this the city that is the joy of all the earth? What do you do? Well, as I look back here, you can say, well, the temple was rebuilt. Well, it was destroyed again in 70 AD. Now there's a mosque sitting there. So what do we do now? How do we respond as the people of God? How do we deal with Psalm 48? Well, there's something I noticed there in Lamentations that sounds awfully familiar to me. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. That takes my mind to Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 15. I want to invite you to turn there with me. We're just outside of the walls of the city when we pick up here and read. We're at the place of the skull. And it says, and it was the third hour, nine o'clock in the morning, when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right, one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Here's what we see. We see the people deriding, hissing, wagging their heads, at the very Son of God, at the King. Taunting Him. Come come down. Take the easy path. But He did not. Jesus Christ obeyed the Father to the bitter end. Three hours later, darkness fell on the earth, symbolic of the fact of what was transpiring on the cross, that the wrath of God was being poured out on the Son of God. The one who never sinned took the sin of the world upon Himself. The fury of the wrath of God, which you and I deserved, was poured out on him. Three hours later, he uttered these words to Telestai. It's paid in full. It's finished. And he breathed his last. And there, they took the destroyed temple. And they laid it in a tomb. Three days later, he rose again. He rebuilt the temple forevermore, brothers and sisters. About 40 days later, he ascended and he is seated at the right hand of the Father and he is coming again to usher in New Jerusalem. 
Until that day, until that day, we are the people of God who remember who God is and we remember what God has done and we look to the cross and to the resurrection and to the ascension of Christ. And we remember what Jesus told Peter when Peter got it right. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he said, I tell you, you are Peter, your little rock. And upon this rock, he was talking about himself, I will build my church and what? The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, for some of you, you've got the metaphor all backwards in your mind. In your mind, you think we're back in a walled up city. We're back in Jerusalem, and hell's trying to get in, and God's not letting them in. You're not hearing the metaphor right. He doesn't say the gates of God. He says the gates of hell. Somebody else is in a walled-up city, and it's not us. We've been set free by the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Lord of hosts. He is the Lord of armies. And he says to us, as my Father has sent me, so I send you. And he has sent us forward as the people of God to proclaim the gospel of God. And here's his promise, brothers and sisters, that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus grabs this same language in his last instruction to his disciples. He says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. I'm the king. I'm the great king. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Here's the only way the nations are ever going to praise him if we go. That's it. They're not going to figure it out on their own. God sends his people, his ambassadors. He sends them to the nations with the message of the gospel. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And what does he say? Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In other words, till I come back, I'm with you. This is just like what he said here in Psalm 48. He will guide us forever. So here's the question I have. Are we we being the people of faith? Are, are, Are we praising the Lord? Or am I praising the Lord with the people of God? Are we being who we're supposed to be? Are we saying... Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. I want you to turn to 1 Peter. So the book of 1 Peter was written to suffering Christians. They were suffering because they were following Jesus. And Peter writes to them. And remember, he's, he's the one that Jesus said, Upon this rock, I'm going to build the church. And so that you're clear that Peter doesn't think he's the rock. He explains the rock in chapter 2. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a royal priest, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands... Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, 
You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Brothers and sisters, here's why the church is dying in the West. It's because we're a walled up city that we gather together once a week and we're saying, how come people aren't coming anymore? That's not how it was ever intended to work. It was a brief window of revival that took place in the United States in the mid-20th century. It's over. We pray that it would return. But until it returns, we obey Jesus. We go. We go. We don't get in the walled up city and say, why don't y'all come? We go. We go and we praise him. We praise him with our life and with our lips. And that requires courage. So let's go back to the beach of Normandy. The bookends of Normandy was Utah Beach, where my grandfather actually landed, and Omaha Beach. In between it are two little-known places to most Americans, because that's where the rest of the nations landed. On Sword Beach, the Brits landed, along with the Scottish Highlanders. That bloodline of William Wallace bled down into the Scottish Highlanders. And their special forces is one of the first landing craft to hit the beach at Sword Beach. The ramp came down and the first man that jumped off into the water was a bagpiper. And he began to play. And as the rest of the special forces of the Scottish Highlanders come off, many of them were cut down. A fierce battle took place on the beach Reports from German soldiers who've been interviewed later, snipers, said they didn't shoot him because they thought he was crazy. He continued to play. The forces, there were multiple nations there. They finally took Sword Beach. They were supposed to be off a little bit sooner because just beyond them was a village where there was a major bridge called Pegasus Bridge that was intended to be kept intact so the, so the Allied forces could pour across it. It was a small band from the 6th Regiment of American Soldiers. They crash-landed in a glider the night before, and they had been told to hold that bridge at all costs. They were down to just a few men. The Scottish Highlanders were supposed to be there at noon. At 1.05, when they were about at their breaking point, off in the distance, they heard a bagpipe. And one of them said to the commanding officer, is that bagpipes? And it got louder and louder. And listen, they were behind the Germans on the opposite side of the bridge. The Scottish Highlanders marched in formation behind that bagpiper through the battle and across the bridge. The piper, Ben Millen, never stopped playing. Twelve of his comrades were shot in the head as they marched. But he never stopped. Why? Courage. Today, we live in a world where complaining is courage. They could have stayed home and got signs and protested the war. And you'd live in a different world. You'd live in a very different place. 
that 21-year-old bagpiper and young men just like him displayed courage that we just don't know anymore. Do you know this week a 96-year-old member of the 82nd Airborne parachuted into Normandy? (laughs) He still got it. (laughs) What's my point? What God is saying in Psalm 48 has got to be interpreted across the story of the Bible and we've got to understand that we still serve the Lord of hosts. He is our king and he has given us marching orders into the world. We don't go as mean people. We don't go as hateful people. We don't go with arms to conquer people and force them into our religion. We go with good news. That's how we go. The nations are subdued with good news. And brothers and sisters, with courage, we are called to go. In the last service, the graduates were sitting right there in front of me. Here's what I said to them, and I'll say to you. The modern age says the courageous thing is just blend in with the rest of us and look like the rest of us. I'm going to tell you what the courageous thing is today in 21st century America in Gastonia, North Carolina. The courageous thing is to follow Jesus. That's the courageous thing to do. Obey the Lord of hosts and praise him as you go. Let's pray. Father, you are the great king. You are Lord over our lives. You have sent your son to die in our place to redeem us. And there are are hundreds in this room who claim and profess to be redeemed by the Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray that our lives would match our testimony and that we courageously, trusting in our great King, would praise you. That we would say, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the midst of this city. We would do it trusting in the Lord of hosts and that we would go with courage wherever you call us to go. Now, Lord, as we sing, as we sing this song that speaks to this moment and speaks to our going, may we sing the gospel. Pray in Christ's name. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.